And as you turn there, if uh, you have children ages four through first grade, they can be dismissed at this time to children's worship. And so as we continue our study uh, through the book of Philippians, we come this morning to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. And before we uh, read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we come together to your word this morning, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Oh Lord, may we receive the truths of your word as you would have us receive them. And may they bear fruit in us. That would be for our good and for your glory. So Lord, give us ears to hear, and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, this comes right after what we looked at last week, uh, Paul talking uh, about the dangers, warning against the dangers of works righteousness in verses 1 through 3. So picking up at verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You may be seated. Jesus told a parable about a man who had found treasure hidden in a field. And when he found it, Jesus says that he went out and, and, he, sold, and he sold all that he had. And in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Because the treasure he found was of such supreme value of such great worth that it was his joy to give up everything else to attain it. And our, our text this morning, these, these uh, words of Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3, it is like that parable in that it reveals the one thing that is the greatest thing. That the one thing that is of such supreme value and worth that it is our joy to give up everything just to attain it. As Paul puts it, that 
greatest thing, the one thing that is the greatest thing is knowing Christ, which is why this sort of the title of our sermon series, The Joy of Knowing Christ. This is, as Paul puts it, the greatest thing. And, and not just knowing Christ in the cerebral sense or in the intellectual sense, not knowing a whole lot of things about Christ or more you know, stuff about who he is and just all the sort of this head type stuff. It's knowing Christ deeply and intimately in a personal and saving relationship. That's the, the essence of that word knowing. Just as uh, when you read in Genesis how Adam knew Eve, it wasn't that he knew who she was. It was that he knew her in this intimate sense. As we enter into this text this morning, we'll see first... Uh, really, sort of two things. Uh, number one, why it is that knowing Christ is the greatest thing. And then number two, what our response should be. And so let's begin then with uh, the question, why is knowing Christ the greatest thing? Well, what is it about Christ that makes Paul so thrilled to know him? Well, well, Paul says there are two things about Christ that make knowing him the greatest thing. And the first reason why knowing Christ is the greatest thing is because Christ is the only means to true righteousness. That's really the, the point that Paul is making in verses 4 through 7. He, he begins by saying, hey, if anybody could, could earn righteousness by means of human status and achievement, it would be me. Right? And, and he sort of goes on to give a whole, lit, a whole litany of his credentials. Now, to, to understand, it's, it's a little bit comical, and Paul does this a couple other places as well, like 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he starts boasting about the things of his, in, the, in the flesh. And to understand what Paul is doing here, we have to remember that the context in which he is writing. Because we saw last week in verses 1 through 3 that, that Paul was warning the Philippians about these, these uh, false teachers and their false teaching of works righteousness. So there's a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers. And they were saying that the, that the Gentile Christians had to conform to certain acts of, uh, and, and rituals of Mosaic law. That they were in effect saying that believers gain the righteousness required to stand before the holy God not by grace alone, through faith alone, but at least in part by their own works and obedience to God's law. And like we saw last week, this made Paul burn because this false teaching undermines the perfect and the all-sufficient work of Christ. It, it robs Christ of, of his glory. And this is why Paul comes down so hard on the Judaizers, as we saw last week, the, calling them, you know, you, uh, the, you, these, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh. It is out of his passion for the glory and the sufficiency of Christ that he condemns them. But now as, we, as Paul goes into these verses here in verses 4 through 7, Paul anticipates a little bit of a pushback from the Judaizers, right? So they might say that Paul is just sort of railing against them because he's jealous, because he himself is lacking their credentials, that he didn't have what it takes to, to meet their standards of righteousness, and so now he's, he's just criticizing them like a sore loser, you know, kind of like a boy who who didn't make the basketball team, and he goes around telling everybody how stupid basketball is, and that he never really wanted to play the dumb game anyway. And to show that that is not the case, Paul indulges in a little bit of mock boasting about his own credentials. If anyone had a claim to salvation by works righteousness, it was Paul. 
And so he says in verses 4 through 6, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Well, you see, these are all top-tier credentials. These are things that mark Paul as an insider through and through. He's, he's one of the elite. He's, he's at the head of the pack. He wasn't circumcised later in life like some proselyte. He was an eight-dayer, circumcised just in a strict obedience to Mosaic law from the very beginning, one who was born into God's covenant embrace. And he was from the highly esteemed tribe of Benjamin. You know, Benjamin, that beloved daughter of Rachel, or beloved son of Rachel. The one who uh, gave birth to the first king of Israel, Saul, after whom perhaps Saul, who became Paul, was named. The, the tribe of, of Benjamin that stood, through, stood by and stood with King David through thick and thin from beginning to end. So the tribe of Benjamin, this highly esteemed tribe, and that is Paul's heritage. And he was from the strictest sect of the Jews, the Pharisees, those who had Law keeping down to a T, and they who not only did it perfectly, but added and, and heaped additional measures on top of it, and then added and then did that perfectly as well. In terms of zeal persecuting the church, you can't get more zealous for God than, than going out and persecuting the church. And faultless, he says in his observance of the law, without wavering, without failing completely devoted. And so the, the sum of what Paul is saying here is that his credentials are matchless and unassailable, that his accomplishments are stratospheric. And so it's not, he, he's not railing against the Judaizers because he wasn't good enough to make their team. He would have been their star player and champion by any measure. If there is a righteousness to be had by human means, then Paul would have been at the top of the list worthy to attain it. But Paul goes on to say that all of these things that he had considered to be gains prior to his conversion, he now considers a loss. He says in verse 7, but whatever were gains, gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And the imagery here is, is striking. Uh, Paul is using the language of credits and debits, like balancing an account. So the, suppose you have a bank account, and for years you've been depositing funds, monthly funds, into that account. And you go one day to check the balance. You want to withdraw some funds because you want to buy a new truck, or you want to buy a new boat, or, a, or diamond earrings for your wife, whatever the case may be. You want to withdraw some of those funds, and you are shocked at what you find. Because you go to check the balance, and to your utter dismay, not only is there no surplus of funds in, in your account, but there is a huge deficit. All of the deposits that you thought were registered as gains were actually registered as losses. You see, that's what Paul says about all of his human-centered acts and achievements, not only did they fail to contribute anything to his righteousness, but they were actually detracting from the real righteousness that is found in Christ alone. 
The very things that Paul had thought were were benefiting him were in fact working to destroy him because they were blinding him to his need for the real righteousness of God that comes through faith alone. In other words, Paul had come to see, as the prophet Isaiah had said so many years ago, that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And he had come to see that it is through faith that Christ takes upon himself our own filthy rags and places upon us his perfect robe of righteousness. As Paul said to the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing. Because Christ is the only means to true righteousness. As Paul says in verse 9, the greatest thing is to gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So this is the first reason why knowing Christ is the greatest thing, because it's only through him. He is the only means to true righteousness. The second reason why knowing Christ is the greatest thing is because Christ himself is the supreme treasure of the universe. That's the point that Paul is making in verses 8 and 9, which really get to the heart of this text, and I would say to the heart of the whole letter. Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You see, it is Christ himself that Paul desires above all else. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing because Christ himself is the supreme treasure of the universe. He is, uh, to borrow the language of another one of Jesus' parables, he is that pearl of great price. The treasure buried in the field, the one thing of such supreme value and worth that it's our joy to give up everything if we could only attain this one thing. In fact, Paul says that everything else is like garbage in comparison, but that word garbage isn't strong enough. It's not a strong enough translation because when we think about garbage, what typically comes to our minds, at least to my mind, is, you know, we we put our little trash into the the scented little bags under the kitchen sink and we tie it up nice and and neat and then we carry it out to to the, the plastic bin in the garage that has a nice little lid on it with wheels and we wheel it out to the driveway so that some other garbage truck can 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 you know lift it up and, and carry it away. Not a lot of real intimate knowledge of garbage, right? It was very different in Paul's day. And the word that Paul uses here is a word that is, uh, has strong connotations. And so the word garbage isn't really a strong enough translation. The image that Paul has in mind in the word garbage, uh, the word garbage is really a softened translation of the Greek word skibalon, which is a great word to say, by the way, skibalon. Uh, a word that means it refers to absolutely revolting things like spoiled food and excrement, 
dung or filth, that which is thrown to the dogs. And in Paul's day, a lot of the times they'd just throw trash out or just the you know, filthy stuff out onto the streets. And it would just be this foul-smelling pile of, of filth. And that's the image that Paul has in mind, which is why the King James Version translates it as dung. Other translations translate it as manure. Imagine a, do- imagine a dog locked in a small room for a week, which is bad enough in itself, I guess, but locked in a small room for a week with a pile of dead fish and rancid chicken and rotten eggs. And after a week locked into that small room with no windows, you open up the door. Imagine the wall of revulsion and stench that would hit you as you open up that door. That's getting a little bit closer to what Paul has in mind with the word skibalon. It was a, a vulgar term in, uh, in Paul's day. And that is what everything under the sun amounts to in comparison to knowing Christ. It's not that everything else is inherently bad. Some of the, everything, there's a lot of good things. There's a lot of good gifts from God under the sun. It's that Christ is infinitely better. That's the point that Paul is making. Paul had come to see that the greatest thing in all the world is knowing Christ. And I, and I wonder how many of us could say the same. Or have we become so enthralled with the lesser things that we, that we don't desire the greatest thing? Have we so feasted on the popcorn of the world that we have lost our appetite for the food that truly satisfies? Have we so feasted on crumbs that we don't really have an appetite for Jesus as the bread of life? How easy it is for us to develop what John Piper calls a suicidal preference of tin over gold, of foundations of sand over solid rock, and games in the gutter over a holiday at the sea. To borrow language from C.S. Lewis. And I believe that one of the things that God has been doing and is doing throughout all the turmoil of the past year and a half is calling us back to the greatest thing, to expose in our hearts, to see those things, those ways that we chased after these lesser desires and allowed all kinds of idols to come in and to fill our hearts and that we have stopped craving the greatest thing and he is calling us back. Again, as John Piper put it, we are hearing in this time God's thunderclap call for all of us to repent and realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. Let me say that one more time. We are hearing in this time God's thunderclap call for all of us to repent and realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing because Christ himself is the supreme treasure of the universe. And that brings us then to the the second question, the, the second and final question that Paul answers in this text. And that is, if knowing Christ is indeed the greatest thing, then what should our response be? Well, the only fitting response is to want to know him more more fully, more completely. You know, if you take one little bite of your favorite dessert, you you crave more. You can't just eat one tiny little bite and then put it away. At least most of us. I've never seen anybody who's been able to do that. I think I told you this story once about my roommate 
Uh, well, you, you guys know Ray, Ray DeLang, when we were roommates. And, and uh, <laughs> so we were poor seminary students, and, and uh, we would go to the food pantry, you know, to get our food. And, uh, and so one day they had, this whole, they had the whole shelf of, uh, of uh, pies. And they had a cherry pie, and Ray loves, loves cherry pie. And so uh, Ray got this cherry pie, and he brought it home, and he took a little sliver of it, cut it, put it on a plate, and he ate it. And I, I went out to, you know, into my room, and I came out about 10 minutes later, come out, the entire pie is gone. <laughs> so he had one little sliver, and they just kept eating until the whole thing was gone. You, you taste a little bit of your favorite dessert, and you just can't stop. You, you, you want more. You crave more. So, too, the heart that knows Christ, that knows Christ as the greatest thing, wants to know him more. When I was in seminary, there was a, a student named Bob and, uh, and Bob was a little bit peculiar. Bob was not like any other student at seminary. And, and the, the thing that made Bob different from all the rest was that Bob was 83 years old. 83 years old seminary student. The rest of us were just starting on the path of ministry. We had all, you know, a whole life, lifelong years of kingdom service ahead of us, but not Bob. In fact, Bob would often joke and say there would be a wonder, if, a miracle if he, uh, if he made it to graduation and was still alive. He had no plans at all for work beyond seminary or for life beyond seminary. And yet there, there he was with the rest of us, memorizing Hebrew and, and parsing Greek verbs and laboring over intricate and deep theological issues and, and writing papers and doing late-night study groups, immersing himself in the Bible and studying diligently for exams. There were many times that I went late at night into the seminary's computer lab, computer room to, you know, check my email or to, to print off a last-minute paper, and there was Bob, the only one in the room sitting with a glow of the computer on his face, hunched over. I didn't know if he was asleep or dead sometimes because he wasn't moving. But there he was, toiling away late into the night. And my friends and I asked him one day, why, why do you do this? <laughs> You know, why at this age would you go through the arduous task of seminary? And his response was simply that he wanted to know Christ more. He said that he became a Christian late in life. And in that moment, he said he discovered that Christ was everything to him. He was the bread that he never knew he needed, the only thing that could quench his lifelong thirst, and he wanted nothing more than to spend the rest of his days and all of the rest of his days studying God's word to know more deeply and fully the one who had become his treasure. When you know that knowing Christ is the greatest thing, you want to know him more. This is what Paul expresses in verses 10 to 11, verses that I think we would do well to memorize and to pray every single day of our lives. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When we know that knowing Christ is the greatest thing, then we want to know Christ to the fullest extent possible for the whole range of all that Christ is from his resurrection power to including, as Paul says, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. 
Because you see, the Christ that we follow is a Christ who suffered. A Christ who not only suffered and endured that as part of his earthly experience, but a Christ who was, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, in his very being and identity, the suffering servant. And so it is that that suffering in our walk as disciples of Christ is a gift. There's no more countercultural sentiment than that, but it's true. That suffering in our walk as disciples of Christ is a gift because it is through suffering that we know Christ more fully and completely. That without suffering, we wouldn't know Christ as fully and completely as we can through suffering. So that the disciple who knows little of suffering is a disciple who knows little of Christ. And the one who wants to know more of Christ will then, will naturally follow that person would embrace suffering as a gift. I think Amy Carmichael captured this so well when she wrote, Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yeah, I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravenous beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? May we be disciples who so long to know Christ that we don't stop short of the cross, but would follow far, even to the place of wounds and scars. When you know that knowing Christ is the greatest thing, you want to know him more, even when it means the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And it may be that you are here this morning and you're not really feeling what Paul seems to feel, that you don't have that same kind of exhilaration over Christ and the all-consuming passion to know more of him. And if that's the case, and you want to have what Paul had, my challenge to you for this week is to spend more time in the word and in worship and in prayer. And along with that, and here's the key thing, to spend less time feeding your craving for lesser desires. Because so many of us, like I said earlier in the service, so many of us, especially as Western Christians, are like the third soil hearers in Jesus' parable of the soils and our hearing of the word and our desire for Christ is choked by life's riches, worries, and pleasures. And so we, in the words of Chris Chris Rice, we wake to find our soul in fragments given to a thousand loves. We have things all around us all the time that are, that are distracting us and pulling us away from, from, our, from our craving for Christ. Given to a thousand different loves. And we will never have the kind of longing for Christ that Paul had if we are choked by life's lesser things. And so my challenge to you for this week is to find, even if it's one thing, that is one of those lesser things that is pulling you away from your craving for Christ, 
and set it aside with the intention that through prayer and time in the word, your hunger for Christ will grow. The greatest thing in all the world is knowing Christ. He is the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. May we live like it would be our joy to give up everything just to attain it. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, indeed, as Paul said, knowing you is the greatest thing. In this time of silent prayer and response, O Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for the ways that we have allowed lesser things to so fill us that we have lost our appetite for the greatest thing. And create within us, O Lord, in this time of silent prayer response, a renewed hunger and a renewed passion, a renewed ache to want to know you more and to see you with renewed eyes as the greatest thing, the supreme treasure of the universe, so that all we once held dear and built our lives upon, we now consider loss. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Oh, Lord, all we once held dear and built our lives upon and all this world reveres and wars to own, all we once thought gain, we have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this, knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. Oh, Lord, may we live that way. And may you stir within us a renewed vision, renewed hearts to see that you are the greatest thing. It's in your name we pray. Amen.